This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today has been studying outbreaks of bubonic plague in history through the lens of literature and other contemporaneous writings for more than two decades. Dr. Rebecca Totaro is Associate Dean of Curriculum and Assessment and Professor of English in the College of Arts and Sciences at Florida Gulf Coast University. Her research focuses on the 16th and 17th centuries and the works of William Shakespeare in particular. She's taught a class at FGCU called Literature of the Plague, for more than 20 years and has written or edited five books, including Representing the Plague in Early Modern England, The Plague in Print, and Suffering in Paradise, The Bubonic Plague in English Literary Studies from Moore to Milton. I spoke with Dr. Totara yesterday about her research and to explore any similarities she sees between plagues in history and our modern experience with the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's hear that conversation now. Dr. Rebecca Totaro is Associate Dean of Curriculum and Assessment and Professor of English in the College of Arts and Sciences at Florida Gulf Coast University. Dr. Totaro, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We invite you to weigh in on our conversation today using WGCU social media. Find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So when and how did your interest in plagues begin? Wow. Well, it was a long time before this pandemic. Um, and, um, and I guess it was in graduate school. And I was in a Shakespeare class that was not my favorite subject, even though I teach it a lot now. And it occurred to me when we were reading Romeo and Juliet that some of the most famous lines in Romeo and Juliet are Mercutio's. And he says, as he's dying, he curses everyone and says, a plague on both your houses. And it occurred to me that we wouldn't, even prior to the pandemic now, we would never have said the equivalent of something like a curse substituting cancer. And so what what did it mean to audiences to hear a curse like that, especially in a live performance hurled out by someone who was dying and nothing had been written about it? So I started to do in some investigation and then realized that some towns at the time that the play was being performed – Some towns might have experienced, people living in those towns might have experienced half of the population of the town dying from bubonic plague. And so why in the world then would you have a curse, cursing everybody in the air in the vicinity with plague? Hmm. So describe the scope of your work in this field. You've you've written or co-written or edited a number of books. Just kind of break that down. Um, Well, so I did do a dissertation. That became my dissertation. I published a the dissertation as a book that wound up looking at what were strategies ultimately that people used to improve their lives when a pandemic would come through um, or when a visitation of the pandemic, which was regular, would come through. And that just led to my finding more documents that others hadn't really looked at and another book called The Plague in Print, where I looked at essentially plague writing as a genre and then subgenres. So Plague remedies were very popular in print. Uh, How would you treat yourself at home? Plague quarantine orders, plague prayers, plague literature. And so the more I researched, the more this kind of mountain of evidence that hadn't been brought to light appeared. And I just felt compelled to be looking into it more. It's funny that just before this pandemic, that's when I was taking a break. (laughs) I was trying to kind of get away from doing plague research. But so that's where um, four or five books have come from. All that research. Do you look at literature and writings 
by people for this evidence because the history books aren't robust enough or, or not? I mean, are there histories written by scholars about these times that provide information that, that this doesn't provide or vice versa? Yes, I guess there were um, histories about plague that might include demographics, how many people died, but there were not diaries at that time. So up until about the 1700s, there weren't diaries, there weren't newspapers as we know them. So to find out what was the human experience of plague, what we have are writings. No photographs. I mean, we really don't have much more than writings. And unfortunately, those writings, what makes it trickier is they're mostly, I mean, they're by literate people, right? So then that's another whole area of exploration is what about the 99% of people, I shouldn't say 99%, 90% of people who weren't literate, hmm. who weren't writing their experience down, how do you access that? And so something like Shakespeare's plays that were performed for audiences of all sorts of people in that audience, if we can assume that the plays resonated with them and we think they did because they were popular and were re-performed, then that gives us an idea of what people accepted as plague experience, you know, what they, what they resonated with. Hmm. Um, you teach a class or you have taught a class called Literature of the Plague. Have you – are you still teaching it? Yeah. Um, has what's unfolded since the beginning of 2020 changed the way you teach that class? Um, or changed maybe the way students respond to yeah, it? Yeah, definitely the way students respond to it. Now, I mean, having said that, it's impossible to read. I mean, so that's what also hooked me about with plague writing from that time period is it's impossible not to find it riveting. The bubonic plague was such a horrific disease, and so for anybody to write about it at all, it's kind of mind-blowing. And all you can do is have your mind blown or almost laugh. I mean, it's just so off the charts. Um, and so students have always found it intense in ways that they didn't expect and just over the top, like, how can you believe what these people went through? And so all the more so now with the pandemic, can they identify and then probably feel relieved that we had it easy compared to them. Describe what we mean by the plague era or this is bubonic plague primarily mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. exclusively. So I'm, I look at bubonic plague exclusively because it was considered the, the plague. Black death. Um, so, black de so black death, bubonic plague caused by Yersinia pestis is the bacteria that gets into fleas that bite rats and then cause this. There was a pandemic, looks like probably Justinian's time um, in um, the early centuries AD. My work focuses on much later after what we know as the Black Death from 1348. So from 1348 through to about 1750, plague was endemic in Europe, so it could pop up again. And it was especially bad from 1348 to about the 1350s, which would be medievalists covering that kind of time period. And then the period that people hadn't been looking at much is the period that I study, which is Shakespeare's time, which is from about 1550 to 1720 or so, there was great concern about bubonic plague in Shakespeare's time and so, or in England and in Europe. So it was coming back on a regular basis, killing thousands of people um, almost every year, um, definitely every decade on average. At what point did you realize that, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic was going to become something that would be historic and as somebody who studies this, you know, as reality started merging with your area of academic interest, like describe what that was like as you saw those things start to come together. Yeah, what a great question. Um, my first 
my first experience instinct was, oh, no, <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> That's it. Um, several months in, I started to write a little something that was going to be maybe a popular culture piece that I could put out on a blog or something. And it was talking about what, in Shakespeare's time, writers said that the bubonic plague was an, a time of epic, like epic literature, meaning epical, like reality had changed. It was an E-P-O-C-H change and epic, E-P-I-C. As I started to write that we weren't going to recognize ourselves a couple of years from now because we were headed into this epical change. And I decided not to publish it because I wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a hesitant. You know, I'm enough of a scholar, I guess, that I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to sensationalize things, so I didn't. But now I can conclude that. And just to be clear to people listening, the bubonic plague and COVID-19 are radically different things. Right. What they were going through then was not what we're going through now, right? That's right. We're so lucky. Bubonic plague often um, hit children. Um, it hit people who really – and we had – a obviously it was COVID, um, people with underlying conditions and the elderly. But bubonic plague is much more brutal symptoms and mortality rates um, – people dying, 80% likelihood that you die from it if you contract it, and you die within five to seven days. At what point did your phone start ringing or did your email inbox start showing up with people wanting to pick your brain about this particular little niche of literature and history that you occupy? Um, it was probably a year in. Mm -hmm. I was a little surprised, but I think it's simply about getting bearings, you know, when something's brand new and people are trying to figure it out, that's what they're putting their energy into and it's not time for a retrospective. I suspect actually now people might be starting to be ready for more retrospective kind of views of plagues in history. Hmm. Um, I pulled this quote from the introduction of the book that you sent me. No other single phenomenon had a more decisive effect than the plague in shaping the early modern crisis of death and the way humans thought of themselves in relationship to it. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, I guess in some ways it's, I mean it as dramatically as stated. If you think about a town, so if half of your town the population dies in a particular given plague year when 10 years ago when the plague came through, maybe a third died, then your relationship to everybody in your community changes radically. The fact that when it comes through, your way of life changes. So it, 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 it just hits every facet of reality. As we know from this pandemic, work, where you get your food, how you get your food, how you interact with family members when you travel, whether or not you work. And for this this population from, again, from about 1550 through to 1665, and then there was concern after that, every single year for more than 100 years, people were kind of on alert and knowing that their entire way of life could change. And they didn't have hospitals. They didn't have crematoriums. They saw death up close, family members, neighbors. So there's a reason why other people say that Shakespeare turned to those major tragedies of his in those years following plague. And it is true. That's when he wrote them. And we know the theaters were shut, and so he had more time on his hands. But at the end of a Shakespeare tragedy, there's a pile of bodies on the stage, some of them who didn't deserve it. And that's got to be informed by bubonic plague visitations. But he also, as I understand it, didn't really directly 
deal with the plague, except for that line that you quoted earlier mm-hmm. and the the reason Romeo and Juliet wound up dead. Explain mm-hmm. what I mean by that. Yeah. The detail that, that is really surprising is that the letter written by Friar John to explain that Juliet is not really dead. Everyone thinks she is, but she's actually drank poison uh, that's going to not kill her. She's still alive, so Romeo can come get her. That letter is not delivered because the messenger carrying the letter is detained in quarantine because of the plague. So it's a small detail in some ways, but it is that quarantine from plague causes the death of Juliet and Romeo. But otherwise, Shakespeare didn't really deal with the plague straight on in his plays and works, right? That's right. Hmm. I had on this show um, last year three local authors to reflect on how this time has impacted their work. And they, none of them, which I found interesting at the time, but now I know this stuff, none of them had in any way written about it. They said maybe someday with time and distance they might, but that wasn't what they wanted to do. And it's, I found that kind of counterintuitive, but mm-hmm. now I'm learning that mm-hmm. this is probably a theme through, mm-hmm. through some of the serious bubonic plague times. Absolutely. I mean, cool. so you can write about it indirectly. I, I think that what we're going to see is writing now that doesn't talk about COVID, but that writing is more powerfully about family connection or about, and maybe about loss in general, but hopefully about reuniting and celebrating family. So like the, and I'll just add um, that Shakespeare uh, follows the tragedies with romances and in the romances. So that's the last kind of genre that he he writes a bunch of plays. And those are about resurrection and reunion of families and miracles that find people alive when they thought they were dead. I want to take a moment to reintroduce our guest. Dr. Rebecca Totaro is Associate Dean of Curriculum and Assessment and Professor of English in the College of Arts and Sciences at FGCU. She's a Renaissance literature expert and author whose work in part focuses on plagues and history as understood through the lens of literature and writing. We're discussing how the times we're in as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to have an impact on the global population, connects to plagues and history and how writers and all of us have responded. If you'd like to engage with us about this conversation, find the post for this episode on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So uh, let's talk about uh, ways that the society and individuals responded to that time that might sort of, we might have similarities to today. Um, The the first question is, is, was there anything equivalent to a run on toilet paper? Right. (laughs) Right. Well, and that's what's been so disappointing Um, for me looking back uh, in time. they, They did it better in Shakespeare's time in terms of helping their neighbors out and not hoarding so we could learn an awful lot from them about coming together as communities and families to help each other out. Um, social distancing, that was a thing. Yep, yep. Um, I was interested to learn that um, plagues instigated the first nationalization of law enforcement and sort of systemic approaches to a, a plague. That, that was sort of where that all originated? Especially population studies, the counting of individuals who had died and what they died from, that that developed from plague. And then if you're counting who's in your city and what they've died from, then you've got statistics you can use for other reasons, yeah. Hmm. And then um, tendencies for groups to place blame on other groups. Ah, that was something that, that we've probably got some echoes of today from historic times, right? Absolutely. Unfortunately, this is another way that we have not learned well from the past and that they did better than we did, that we've done. 
And it's partly because bubonic plague was indiscriminate entirely in its killing, and they didn't know what caused it. And they saw that people who had privilege and people who were foreign, I mean, who they would identify as foreigners, all got it equally, and none of them had better health care than the others. Some were better able to flee, but so they're, they're, it's harder to point the finger at somebody if everyone's got it and suffering. So there weren't conspiracy theories like that. And the one period of time that there was a, a bit of a conspiracy theory developing, and that was in the 1340s, late 40s, the Pope himself came out, and this was people blaming the Jews for starting plague. The Pope himself came out with a papal bull, and that was Pope Clement IV, I believe, or sixth, And he said, it is not the fault of the Jews. He made it clear that there would be punishment for anyone who did bother Jews about the, the plague. So unfortunately, our finger pointing has been worse. You mentioned this earlier, but I want you to flesh it out just a little bit more. The plagues during Shakespeare's time shut down theaters, which gave writers of plays a lot more time on their hands. So was that a particularly prolific time for Shakespeare when the, when the plagues were rolling through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one could say we just simply wouldn't have as many plays by Shakespeare, and he might not be the writer that we know um, and celebrate were it not for plague, giving him the chance to be prolific and then sought after. Once, as soon as the plays opened, there were multiple plays to be put on. Um, I watched a, a talk that you gave on YouTube, and you said that if not for the plague, we might not have had the Renaissance. Can you kind of discuss what you mean by that? Yeah, so scholars, this is not my um, my idea. There's a um, scholar, Norman Cantor, he's one of many, who his book is um, called In the Wake of Plague, uh, who posits that in the, the earlier period prior to Shakespeare in the 1340s uh, and 50s, because so many noblemen died, people of upper classes died, there was room for those who worked for them to be elevated like never before. There was a great need for workers, so we can identify with that now as well. Um, an opportunity for people to say, well, maybe I want to have a different kind of job. I don't want to just report to the same person and do the same job that my dad did. So because there was a critical need for workers in that period, people changed jobs, and it also had them rethink structures in general, the church, um, the Reformation, uh, questions about the Catholic Church, and ultimately Reformation follow from that. So there was an opportunity to rethink everything, which is back to this epical, this idea mm -hmm. of a great epic change, which we're on, on right now. Where do utopian novels fit into this story? Yeah, well, and so there, that's a um, perfect, right? Perfect segue. Um, Thomas More, um, some people know him as St. Thomas More, who refused to support Henry VIII's divorce from Catherine of Aragon. He wrote the first utopia, thinking about what could be the, the ideal world in that time before he was executed. <laughs> and in his utopia, like in Francis Bacon's utopia that followed um, 50 years or so later, they both put plague into their utopias and had solutions for those, uh, had solutions for plague, how to prevent plague from visiting their populations. So the link between a horrible crisis like a pandemic and solutions to prevent that um, and for a more hopeful future was kind of solidified then. I have an interesting analogy that I think you'll appreciate. I recently was reading about how the rise of the superhero movie came, mm -hmm. if not in response to, in the wake of 9-11. Like the mm -hmm. first superhero movies were starting to come out in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And it was like we had this collective need to have people powerful enough to save us 
from Dark Forces. Yeah. So that's kind of similar, yeah. would you say? Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, I was thinking, I had been thinking about something about the popularity of dragons, you know, Game of Thrones and yeah, dragons yeah. and that something about the power of flight above problems and, yeah. Um, do you think that we'll see changes, I think you've alluded to this, but, you know, in literature, in art, that we might not be able to sort of see until we get further down the road because of these times? And can you speculate as to what the nature of those would be? It's an unfair question. No, I, I, I absolutely, I, I guess what I hope is that we have time to catch our breaths to have a literary and kind of cultural arts flourishing after this pandemic and that it's and that we have that opportunity because there isn't another one or other crises right on our heels. So I think we're unfortunately I think we're you know we're entering into a time when we may have many many opportunities for great challenges that might inspire great literature. Epochal times. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, yes. Uh, so one of the interesting tidbits that uh, I found from this was that the era of the plagues ended because there was a great fire in London that burned the thatched roofs, were already kind of on their way out anyway, yep. but that's where the fleas lived. So it was like this big disaster ended a bigger disaster. That's right. Uh, that I didn't know that. That's right. That's amazing, right? So it kills the rat habitat, which right. is the th- thatched roofs. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and so it was still happening on the continent. So that's why it didn't get uh, rid of it entirely. But well, it just... in England, it largely did. And then, the, but the fear of the English in 1720, when it was hitting Europe again, and plague of Marseille was horrifying in 1720-22. People in England were writing. This is why um, Daniel Defoe writes a journal of a plague year in those years in the 1720s, saying, "Hey, folks." Let's get our acts together because it's going to come to us again. And it never did because the, that, the habitat wasn't there. But there was still concern. You mentioned at the beginning that, you know, before COVID came along, you were kind of taking a break. Where are you at now? Are you working on anything new in this field or not? Well, I, um, so I guess your question about have I been asked to do a lot of uh, you know, revisit this now because of the pandemic, I am being asked to write a lot of pieces. So I am doing kind of small follow-up writing still about plague and I had, so here's the thing, I had tried to be getting away from plague before the pandemic, like like we said, and I thought, well, why not the comedies? Like, why not turn to comedy? And uh, unfortunately, I found that what makes studying comedy interesting is unfortunately kind of the surprises that how dark they are. Whereas when you when you study plague, it's the silver linings that are powerful and amazing. You know, the communities coming together, and it's worth saying the most important lesson that I've, I've drawn from this past experience, the, studying the plague in the past, is how close families were and how close communities were and neighbors were. And if you think about it, we live in gated communities and often far from family. That's been one of the reasons that this pandemic has hit us so hard. All right. Well, that is all the time we have, but I want to thank my guest, Dr. Rebecca Totaro, is Associate Dean of Curriculum and Assessment and Professor of English in the College of Arts and Sciences at Florida Gulf Coast University. Dr. Totaro, thank you so much for coming in and sharing some of this interesting history with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. 
If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is NPR for Southwest Florida, 90.1 WGCU-FM, Fort Myers, Naples, and Punta Gorda, and 91.7 WMKO Marco Island. We're a member-supported service of Florida Gulf Coast University.